from the newspaper. Yeah, that's great. He was very fa- he was very famous. You know, I read yeah. to and while you were busy, I was reading about Abel Gantz, and I learned he was, in fact, such a, you know, sort of known figure. His horoscope was discussed in the popular press as well. Uh, and I can give you a little insight here. It is certain that the importance of the ninth house in Gantz's horoscope has a relationship with his tendencies to reform and transform the art of cinema. In this way, Russian esotericist Alexandra Valgunia credited Gantz's innovative camera placement and invention of polyvision to the ninth house being, quote, that of spiritual works, of vision and ecstasy, of subjective or superior states of mind, and of elevated tendencies in the brain, brain, brain. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah. Well, but the policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He will have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh. Tell you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my That's hot out there. Let's we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Eric Marsh, and I'm joined here with Ryan Saunders. And me, Andrew Stasulis. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast where one of the hosts picks a theme and the other hosts pick movies to watch in response to that theme. And together, we sit down and run the gauntlet. We sure do. It's episode 13. Whoa. It's the end of the world as we know it. And today we have quite a pairing. And I want to highlight our commitment to... uh, watching a wide variety of films. These are the most recent and oldest films that we have watched on the podcast so far. So we got 2015 and 1931 today. Next week we'll have to do a film that isn't done yet and then um, like an Edison picture or something. (laughs) (laughs) Not a bad idea. Okay, so uh, this week's topic, like I said, is the end of the world, and uh, we have quite a pair as usual, so let's just get into it. Uh, Ryan, you want to introduce us to the film you picked this week? Okay, so I, and now you could sort of like put the crown on me. I am the guy that finally picked a film that was um, the exact same title as The Prompt. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Um, took a lot of courage didn't really want to be that guy, but here I am. I am that guy. So I picked a film called La Fin du Monde, The End of the World. And it is an Abel Gans film from 1931, a sound film from the legendary Abel Gans. And the film is very proud of that fact, too. When it begins, it announces that here is the first major French sound picture. And, you know, he has a lot of fun, and it doesn't seem like he was too restricted by sound. However, Abel Gantz was very restricted by his producers and the financiers and those in charge of the production. Le Fin du Monde was originally supposed to be three hours long, 
who was a grand epic project from a man who was known to make grand epic projects. And I guess it was seen to be a little unruly by those in charge. So what they did was they stole the film from it, gave it a classic hack job. And what we're left with is coherent, I guess you could say, maybe, maybe not. Um, But what we have is something that clearly has lots and lots of gaps. And it kind of creates a chaotic and really dense and jam-packed viewing experience to the point where you're constantly questioning whether you're missing information that may have been given to you or if you're just spotting the holes in information that Abel was like uh, more casually giving you that information elsewhere. But basically the film is, it starts with a really stirring image. You have Abel Gantz um, as Jesus up on the cross and it's a kind of a weird crucifixion because there's like prickly pears everywhere and and as the camera moves away you realize oh this is a stage production this is not in fact we're not watching we're not starting the film with Christ and we get a little insight into who some of our characters are going to be in the audience watching Abel Gantz up there as Jesus but eventually late one night a scientist named Marshall kind of peers through his telescope and notices a comet is hurtling towards Earth, a comet that had previously missed Earth in the 1500s, but now it is, it's headed back, it's coming right at us, and we are running out of time. He consults with a team of international experts who also then take a look at this comet. They come up with their calculations. They all confirm the, the math. They pat each other on the back, and they realize we have only 114 days left. Those days quickly turn to 90 and the news starts to get out to the public. Things then evolve in a way that is actually kind of interesting when you think about how things have been going the past year. You have a lot of scheming going on, people deciding to profit on the end of the world, hoping that it's probably just a hoax and that they can walk out with their pockets stuffed. But yeah, it's it's the end of the world as we know it in Le Fin du Monde. And humanity gives it their best shot and we'll yeah that's something we'll talk about as we get farther in our conversation is sort of where humanity ends up by the end but that's Le Fin du Monde from 1931 by Abel Gantz. Andy what did you bring for us? Well you know it's interesting to hear Ryan describe uh, his choice Gantz's Le Fin du Monde as a sort of chaotic film and a chaotic viewing experience uh, because I chose what can only be described as a very chaotic film as well, uh, Takashi Miike's Yakuza Apocalypse. It's very difficult to summarize uh, this film. I think it's very difficult to summarize a lot of Takashi Miike's sort of gonzo cinema, uh, but I'm gonna give it my best shot here. So uh, Yakuza Apocalypse opens in a small sort of coastal Japanese town. And uh, we're introduced to Kaimura, who is the local Yakuza boss. And Kaimura is presented to us as a sort of benevolent Yakuza boss. And he's often described as the sort of protector of this town. And we see early on, like him helping out the locals. He's very popular. And there's this sort of harmonic balance between his Yakuza gang and the local townsfolk. Underneath him as well is his protege, Kageyama who looks up to his boss with reverence. He idolizes Kaimura for his fairness, uh, his toughness, and uh, his leadership. However, this all gets upended very quickly as we learn that Kaimura, the local Yakuza boss, is actually 
a vampire. And not just any vampire, a Yakuza vampire. And we're going to get into what that specifically means. Uh, however, what happens uh, is Kaimura is suddenly assassinated. He's killed by a priest with a coffin for a backpack, a casket for a backpack, and uh, a strange sort of tourist from Indonesia who clearly likes anime. Uh, and they murder Kaimura very viciously and brutally. They cut his head off. And Kageyama, who tries to, to stop this, this killing, is now holding the severed head of his boss, which comes back to life and bites him, thus transferring his Yakuza vampire powers onto Kageyama. Kageyama unknowingly then initiates the Yakuza apocalypse, which begins with a unchecked spread of vampirism as Kageyama starts to bite sort of innocent, unsuspecting civilians of this town, and then all hell really breaks loose. And uh, as I said, it's very difficult to, to sort of summarize some of the insanity that is to follow, but I'm hoping that in our conversation we'll, we'll dive into some of the very surprising twists and turns in Yakuza Apocalypse. I think saying all hell breaks loose when in reference to a Mike film kind of there's an understanding of what that means, don't you think? I think there's a lot implied in that statement um, that most people familiar with a Mike film can kind of, I think, get on our wavelength here to get a sense of truly all hell breaking loose. Yeah. If you've seen a Mike film, you are are going to be treated to all the gory, crazy, wild delights you would expect from uh, his his more gonzo, I think, cinematic. I think it's it's important to know too, you know, that Mike is an incredibly prolific director, and I think sometimes people lose sight of that. But this guy's made well over a hundred movies. Uh, at the high point of his career, he was averaging like two to four feature length films a year, and he sort of bounces all over the place. I think in the West, he's most, of course, known for things like Ichi the Killer. Gozu, the Dead or Alive franchise, you know, his wilder, more like Japan extreme cinematic things. But the guys made period films, comedies, children's films, fantasy pictures, a bunch of TV, you know, I mean, he's sort of all over the place. I think he's getting into like K-pop now, too. Yeah, he's, uh, he's, he's, you know, and a big part of that, and we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but, you know, this film was a huge part of sort of him kind of returning and trying to return to those sort of wild, youthful roots that he had when he certainly became well-known here in the West. Yeah, because Yakuza Apocalypse, uh, this was my first time seeing it, and I'm a long-time Mike fan going back to when I was a, a teenager. And this is honestly one of his goofier films, and I guess I'm not sure I expected that because there was that period where he was doing a lot more, you know, if you want to call it prestige with 13 Assassins or Harakiri or whatever. This is, yeah, sort of a return to that goofiness. Now, one thing I, I want to connect these two films, I guess, with the very obvious connection between its directors, and that is that these two films, which are both about the end of the world, one explicitly and one sort of sneakily, um, <laughs> they're directors of cinematic excess. They are both maximalists. They are both chaotic 
directors and visual stylists. And I found that to be an interesting pair, right? It's like, who's drawn to these kinds of stories or something this dramatic and, and this sort of crazy. And it makes sense when you look at both the careers of Abel Gantz and Takashi Miike. They're, uh, you know, the perfect kind of directors to uh, veer into this territory in their own ways, right? Yeah, what they lack in subtlety, they make up for in absolute balls to the wall <laughs> filmmaking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I no, was like, it's, it's, I was like, a, I hadn't thought about the two of them as like I was like reflecting on. Well, that. I guess I like, so. No, to draw that out, point. it is. I mean, no, it is. Point. It's nice. And I'll yeah. draw. And I guess we can then draw a distinction between them, right? If we say they're both directors of cinematic excess, now Abel Gantz is a romantic, right? A guy born in the 1800s. This very emotional you know, fervent religious kind of like cinema. And Mike is this postmodern nihilist who is straight up just all about the surface and fucking with you. And certainly he's not trying to impart any great wisdom through his cinema. Whereas Abel Gantz, being a man of the silent era, literally thought, that movies could change the world. Mm -hmm. And they, as we saw in La Fin du Monde, the film is very much sort of centered around uh, this idea that the end of the world will bring about a new and better society. And Yakuza Apocalypse is, you know, sort of, yeah, dancing its way to hell or, well, or whatever you want to call it. It's a great way of putting it, right? In the sense that if Gantz is hoping that this can be some sort of beacon of light towards a better world, Mike seems to revel in the destruction of our world. It seems to dance maniacally as it all burns down. And not just in this film, but but quite a few of his other films. And yeah, you know, talking about that, talking about him and his playfulness, Mike said in an interview, like going into this film when it was getting released, that he had felt he had gotten too square, I mean, for lack of a better term, too safe with his filmmaking because he had sort of dipped into making, you know, period pieces and more sort of prestigious films. Uh, he had remade Harakiri, which is a classic of Japanese sort of samurai cinema, I guess you could call it. And he had made 13 Assassins, and then he had made some, some children's films. And he said he felt compelled suddenly to sort of reset, to reset his career and to, to get back to having fun. It does feel like that's what he's doing. Like he's working through all of that maybe pent-up tightness that he developed over the years from trying to be a bit more respectable, if that's even the right word to use when thinking about it, because I don't even know if, I don't want to like project that and say that's what he was thinking, but no, there's like definitely a different wavelength that this film is on compared to th those ones that you had mentioned, and so much of this film does feel like he's throwing things at the wall just to see what'll stick, and a lot of it doesn't, a lot of stuff hits and disappears and doesn't come back, but at the same time, you have to just like appreciate that divergent thinking and that type of energy that is, you know, pretty hard to find in a time where there seemed like there was this boom in extreme cinema and wild gonzo cinema. And now it almost feels like, you know, doesn't it sort of feel like we're in like this era where, you know, remember when films could 
like, you know, make people puke at Cannes and they'd all walk out and they'd freak out <laughs> oh, and you know, yeah. people passing out and be like, oh my God. And, you know, now it's a huge part of that. Of course. You know? Yeah. And it, it feels like there's, I don't know, you never hear stories about that anymore. Right? You do to just like a smaller extent. It's never as like as ruthless. Or yeah. As all intense. we get now is like Gaspar Noe dance films and, <laughs> and they all get, you know, like uh, well reviewed. Yeah, yeah. People on drugs fucking like that's yeah, that's as yeah. far as all like, that a 24 snore fest stuff yeah, yeah I mean, of course. you guys know i've talked about this to you but when i moved to, to chicago in the early 2000s uh I, w- I was going to facets and renting dvds all the time and when i was 18 i like you know quote unquote discovered takashi Mike, and i actually saw ichi the killer in its theatrical run when I when I was eighteen and I was I was Mike fan for life, you know, watching Dead or Alive and all that stuff. When it was shocking to me, it was positively shocking, you know, Katakuris or uh, Fudo or any of that stuff, right? You ever seen a woman shoot a dart out of her vagina? I have because of Takashi Mike. Uh-huh. I was frightened by just the cover of Ichi for the longest time. It's I mean, gross. even because it had taken me, it was like I, maybe even after college when I finally even watched it. But I was like, oh, that looks like too much for me yeah. you know and I, I liked spooky stuff i think i think the film that really launched him for western audiences too was was audition yeah um because audition is a very interesting film because he himself doesn't even refer to it as a horror movie he refers to to audition as a romance he's like this is my vision of romance but for people who've seen audition and have maybe even just heard of it you you often hear how shocking and violent and graphic it is but again, this is like from his his sort of well. It's got the twisted tenderness in its. Uh, it does anyway. It, it, yeah, it does. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this that's sort of what this project really was was Mike trying to I think respond to what you just even brought up, Ryan. This idea of like, man, lost my edge a little bit. You know, I got to get it back. And how, how, how to do that for Takashi Miike? Well, some refer to this film as like his greatest hits. And I think you kind of see that when you watch it. Like he's hitting a lot of the notes that he's hit before in his career. And and so it's a really genre defying film. Like if you kind of look at it, depending on what review you might read or who you might, you know, see describing it, they'll call it a sort of, Western Yakuza vampire thriller comedy. And that, I think, is even leaving quite a few details out or descriptors out. But but it's a, it's a very, like, fun movie if I think you can can just sort of embrace that chaos, you know? I hate yeah. to I hate to bring up a quote so early in our discussion here before we've really even talked about the movie, but on that exact note, Andy, I want to I want to highlight something that friend of the show Jake Mulligan wrote about the film in Dig Boston when it came out, and he wrote, "The pleasures this film is offering aren't interpretive. They're textural. The spells cast against common sense pile up." Demons of folklore arrive on the scene, followed by a terrorist frog and a kaiju monster. They all involve themselves in fight sequences, which are blocked with the sure hand of a combat cinema veteran. That's what elevates even moderately interesting Mike films from curious into art. 
he can speak the formal languages he's subverting with a tongue more fluent than those of a genre's most ardent practitioners. If you believe all filmmakers are subconsciously programmed by the markets they make films for, and that's a persuasive argument, then you must concede that Mike is the result of a glorious malfunction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because that really struck me, right? And it's, it's a strength and weakness of the film, right, is that it's swerving in all these directions. It's incoherent in, in good and bad ways, right, because it is this vampire apocalypse thing. That's part one. Then you've got the the frog monster. That's sort of part two. And then that all clashes and escalates and escalates until, yes, we're in our, you know, thematic end of the world uh, sort of scenario, right? And throughout this, it's mostly a martial arts film. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of fighting. Oh, yeah. And a comedy as well. Yes. I mean, I think this movie is is hilarious. I mean, I even rewatching it again for this, I was laughing out loud at times. And yes, it has incredible fight sequences. It has really good action. It's got some really nice gore and some really nasty body horror at times. Uh, but in spite of all that, I think as Ryan said, it's just like you can clearly see that everyone here is is just having a blast. And they're having a blast in the sense that it is, as the quote you described, a sort of like malfunction. Like this isn't a movie that is about like working things out or working things through. It's it's sort of like just sort of holding on for the ride and, and letting all of that nihilism or anarchy uh, sort of just swirl around you and, and to take what you want from it. Because it's also a film about the Yakuza. It's also a, a gangster picture as well. You know, you have this. And and for, you know, Mike, you know, that was a huge part of it for him was being like, you know, I love Yakuza. And he said that he loves Yakuza and Yakuza stories because you can do anything you want with them. He says, you know, with Yakuza, it's like, it's just constant twists, constant turns. Yakuza are free. That's what he says. They can do what they want, go where they want. And to sort of just drive things into these really, you know, intense or dramatic and often comedic places, you know. It was funny. I didn't read anything about the film before I started it. So I didn't even know that the premise was that they were vampires. Um, and that made the opening sequence really awesome. Because I'm watching the opening scene, you know, we've got our Yakuza boss, who is a vampire, being shot at um, repeatedly and stabbed and sliced up, and he just keeps fighting. And here I am, not knowing this is a vampire film, just thinking, like, wow, the intestinal fortitude of this man. Like, look at him go. Yeah. And then, yeah, it's, of course, a great reveal. Then he bites the neck, and I'm like, oh, okay, I, I, I'm on board. Like, this is fun. Um, but it yeah, is, it's, it's a great opening. It's a great opening sequence. Well, and that's a good way to sort of, yeah, like, introduce the first section of the film, which is, again, this, you know, this assassination of this vampire who then passes it on to his second-in-command, and then he he accidentally begins this yeah epidemic essentially and that's one of the you know one of the strengths of the film right is the satire of the yakuza because what happens when 
a person becomes a vampire Yakuza is that they're not just a vampire, but they act like Yakuza, right? <laughs> so they're shit-talking, like any incident, they're willing to blow up into a fight or escalate anything into violence. They were, and, and this is a big sort of you know comedic play in the film where it's like, now the real Yakuza who aren't yet vampires are coming to the civilians, like, you gotta pay protection, but now the civilians are vampire yakuza and they're like fighting back and refusing yeah they start uh, bullying the yakuza back and <laughs> it is like the part for me that i think i laugh at the most is just that sequence where the yakuza are like walking around this town incredulous at at what's happened yeah that the everyone disrespects oh, yeah yeah i mean there's the great bit too where even like they're so upset that they go to a cop they try to find a cop and complain to the cops, <laughs> yeah. but the cops have now also turned in Yakuza vampires and the cop immediately like sticks his hand out and is like, fuck you, pay me. Yep. You want help from all these people? Then you got to pay me, you know? And then the, the guy's like, you're, you're a cop. You're supposed to be protecting us. You're supposed to be helping everyone. And the cop says, Look, I like to abuse my authority, drink booze, and gamble, all right? And it's like the physicality of it, too, because they're all just sort of like... Boots up on the table. Yeah, and they're like crouched, they're all slouching. I mean, one of the cues even like yells at people, like, why are you walking like that? That's like how we walk. You're not allowed to do that. Like, I mean, and it's it, it should be noted that they don't even really start dressing like Yakuza. No. I mean, you've got... Nurses. It's just like the attitude and the physicality. Yes. That is like the big change, right? Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah. It, and so like throughout the, this whole first section as, you know, Kageyama is learning more about this and trying to like carry on his boss's legacy, which by the way, another connection between the two films, if you want to make it, is that they're very much about people who have to like carry on this vision from uh, mentor to another, right? In La Fin du Monde, it's Jean, played by Abel Gantz, the prophet, passing along ideas to his brother who has to carry them out. And then in Yakuza Apocalypse, you've got the, the boss to Kageyama, and, and so essentially, right, like there, Mike almost is developing like a societal critique. I mean, it does get like explicit at a certain point, too, where they even say what you've been thinking the whole time. Right. Like, oh, yes, the Yakuza are draining the blood of the civilians. Right. They have a like, you know, like anyone who's described capitalism as vampire like uh, Mike's doing that in this movie, but then kind of just like drops it once things get mystical. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's true. There is all sorts of like funny blood details throughout the film too about like the different nutritional quality of Yakuza blood versus civilian yeah, right. blood. Yakuza blood is shitty. Yeah. yeah. Civilian blood tastes very good. Like there's a really funny s sequence where Kageyama is, you know, he's already bitten a few people un unknowingly civilians and he has this guy who is you know kind of like a mentor figure to him who's like this elderly Japanese man who runs like a little sushi shop and he's got these chalkboards and he's showing you know him pictures and explaining you know civilian blood tastes really good but you're gonna create more Yakuza vampires and that's gonna throw everything out of balance so what we do is we drink 
only Yakuza blood and only in small amounts. I think he says like 250 milliliters, you know? And we see a sequence early that we don't understand where that's happening. While the boss is still alive, Kaimura, they're at this, you know, this little like sushi shop and Kageyama is just sort of, you know, looking around and underneath the sushi shop in the basement, there's a very strange operation which uh, has a bunch of guys in a knitting circle. They're all sort of sitting around and knitting uh, and we don't really understand what's going on and it's not really fully explained, but as the sequence unfolds, we start to realize, okay, these are all Yakuza that are being held prisoner down there and are just like a personal blood bank for the boss, Kaimura, uh, that is handled in just like a, the only way you can describe it is a very like Mike way. Like it's goofy, it's weird, it's violent. Like guys are getting their feet smashed with wooden clogs <laughs> all while, while having to keep their cool and knit, you know, right. but then they will ascend if they do right and be drained of their blood for the boss. But yeah, Kageyama doesn't understand that. So he just starts biting civilians. He just starts chomping down on necks because he has this thing inside him that wants to feed. Uh, so yeah, he like unwittingly starts this vampire apocalypse. And, you know? and like, you know, like anybody who eats too many sweet treats, um, you run the risk of having nightmares. <laughs> and that's what happens to him. He eats so much civilian blood, he starts having spooky dreams about his noodles turning into fish eggs and tadpoles Frog and growing. Eggs. Frog eggs, yeah. yeah. And so when he mentions that to the mentor that then gives him like a description on the chalkboards about the different values between blood, he's like, wow, you're, you're really gorgeous. You're the real deal. You had a ton of civilian blood. You're getting dreams like that, okay. you know? <laughs> and you know, you also bring up a good point, Marsh, about, you know, the sort of like you know, class aspect of it or the, the, you know, like economic critique you could make in this film. It's also the recession, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a, a sequence where we're, we're introduced to the boss as being very benevolent, uh, where, you know, he's going to, there's like a, a guy who runs like a, a, a shop selling like electronics or something like that. And as he goes in to this guy, you know, this, this, this man's been sort of bankrupted by the recession and there's like, foreclosure stickers on like every item in their home. <laughs> like the guy's totally busted and clearly everything he's, he owns is getting seized. And his poor son is like so heartbroken by the family's financial failure during the recession that the son's like, dad, you have to kill me. And the son like he just lies down, like, lays down and, go. and hands his dad an ax. And he's like, cut my head off because we're so crushed by this recession and, and the unfairness of capitalism. But of course, like Kaimura, the benevolent boss, sort of saves the son and saves the family, gives them some money. And that's where Kageyama like sort of looks at his boss as, you know, this guy, he really is like he cares about his town. But yeah, you know, that's a, that's a huge point because Kaimura is ultimately unsettled by this like he's, he's killed by this syndicate. This, you know, it's not really explained like what they are. They're only referred to as a syndicate. Uh, and one of his captains is revealed to be in league with this syndicate because she has much more of a, I think, sort of greedy, capitalist sort of mindset. You know, she, she doesn't like the equilibrium in this town. She doesn't like helping out these people. She sees civilians as only something to benefit from financially, to take advantage of. And that ultimately leads to this overturn of leadership 
that introduces this very bizarre bit with the syndicate and a mythical creature that shows up that's referred to as a kappa in folklore. And I don't even really know how to describe the look of this character. He actually kind of reminded me of like a, a, well, yeah, Birdman or like a Koopa Trooper from like Mario Brothers, right? Because he had like the shell on his back and like kind of similar hands and he had like the little beak mouth. Yeah, he's got like frog (laughs) hands, a turtle shell on his back, a, a beak sticking out of his lips. And he's very, very stinky. Yes. Yes, and that yeah. comes from Japanese folklore. Like these are, they're known as kappas or kappas, and they can be either very good or very bad. And this one is clearly on the bad side. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, like I, it wasn't really clear to me how the sort of like the the slaying of the boss leads to ultimately like the frog monster sort of arriving i guess i was like totally unclear on like the connections between any of this stuff so cause and effect in general is very peculiar in this film yeah well and actually you know what though here we go like so we'll circle it back like mike tells us what this film is all about the part where the old man and kagiyama are talking like, I wish I knew what the boss wanted me to do now that he's dead and I'm a vampire. I don't know what to do. And the old man's like, oh, hey, he left this for you. And he gives him an envelope and he opens the envelope and it's blank. And they're like, oh, it means, yeah, they're like struggling and they're sort of like, oh, maybe it means like clean slate. But it's later they figure out that they need to burn the paper to reveal the message. And it says, stay foolish mm-hmm. and it's like this this moment where again where Mike's building up this object this paper that must have this great message and the message is stay foolish right <laughs> and that is a message i think from Mike to us to himself to the film and saying that's it that's the ethos yeah, right having a laugh and so yeah so right yeah. we've got a man with a beak walking around with stinky frog fingers that he's like rubbing on everybody's yeah, noses everyone's disgusted by him yeah yeah the priest who Mike has said is you know his homage to Django yes. Uh, cause he's walking around with this like casket on his back. The casket is also like in Django, right? Containing a gun. And it's like this like steampunk gun that they use to like stun Kageyama's boss before they twist his head off. Yes. Incredible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The fake oh, head that they lift yeah. off uh, is really nice. Cause it's like, it's like squishy and weird. Like the way they had his eyes work and the, in the severed head was really impressive. Oh yeah. Yeah. Now that is it. That's, that's one of the best decapitations I've seen in a long time in a movie when Kaimura gets his head twisted off. Right? It sounds really nice too. Marshall have to put the sound of the head being twisted over this. What? But you know, I'm I'm glad I'm really glad you brought that up, Marsh. This this you know the the sort of I guess if you want to even if you want to go the moral of the story, right? To to stay foolish. 
Because really, I mean, that's everything that this movie represents, you know? And there is stuff in here about, you know, identity and conformity and, and you know, how, how, one, how one should live their life. And if you really embrace that idea, stay foolish, again, it goes back to Mike's whole desire for making this movie. You know, he felt like he'd gotten too safe. He felt, you know, he'd lost that idea. The thing that really brought him, you know, I think international success was, you know, being foolish, making these movies that are, you know, that defy plot descriptions that defy understanding or cause and effect. I mean, said, even Ryan. as we discussed, this isn't his, by by any stretch of the imagination, his first end of the world movie. I can think of <laughs> several of his movies where the world, uh, like in the case of Dead Alive, literally explodes, and then he made a sequel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. To blow it all up again, you know? Yeah. He's the kind of guy that, uh, by being foolish and opening up so many can of worms, sometimes the only way to back out of the mess you've created is blowing up the world by the end of the film. Yeah. Yes. yeah. <laughs> and I think Abel Gantz thought the same thing, but in a slightly different way. Right, yeah. But again, you know, like this movie, it's like, you know, once the frog gets introduced, I think, it, you know, you really start to, to get it, get that idea of stay foolish. So in addition to the Kappa figure that we've described, uh, everyone is also foretelling this you know, apocalyptic presence that's showing up. The modern monster, a.k.a. the world's toughest terrorist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is great. And again, <laughs> a lot to unpack in just that alone, like the modern monster, the world's toughest terrorist. But when it finally shows up, it's a guy in a big, like, mascot suit of a frog. Like... And again, you know, you have to see this thing to really understand how ridiculous it looks. It is the farthest thing from menacing. And some Yakuza, like, also see this thing walking up and are like, who the hell is that? What the hell is this thing, right? And they approach the frog and the guy in the frog suit. And are like, what the hell are you doing? And then the guy in the frog suit just absolutely kicks the shit out of them. is like an amazing martial artist like i mean it is like such a great little sequence there and and it's like oh here he comes right but then like what does his presence represent i mean like it's just this harbinger of doom it's not again ever explained to us like who this thing is what it is where it comes from they do say at one point though that it hates yakuza yeah, it, it hates it's Yakuza. It's about all I know about it. Yes, it, it hates Yakuza, and seemingly the world, I guess, as well. But uh, yeah, the, the, when the frog monster shows up, that's when things really start to kick into the gear of it becoming like the sort of end of the world. Well, and Mike scores the frog, too, with a little like whistle and a Western theme as well. Again, this sort of like mashing of genres at all moments, because yeah, it's like, here comes the frog, and it's like, instead of William Holden walking towards the camera, like in Wild Bunch, it's a frog, and there's yeah. a Western tune being played. Yeah. And there's like a really funny bit, too, because, you know, we see this frog guy in the frog suit, whatever, like kicking the shit out of everybody, like vicious, violent, you know, uh, very coordinated in its, in its ability to like beat the fuck out of people. But then there's a funny bit where they're in the basement, 
and the guy in the frog suit is trying to get down the stairs, but he he has like a hard time getting down the stairs because of his big awkward costume. So they have to like help him up and down these stairs, yeah. you know? And it's like very awkward. Like he looks like he's going to fall down the stairs. You know, he's very like, whoa, you know, unsure of his steps. But, but yeah, you know, bringing up the spaghetti Western thing, I think is really important because if you go back and you look at a lot of spaghetti Westerns, a lot of those spaghetti Westerns, didn't make a whole lot of fucking sense either, you know? Yeah, I mean, spaghetti westerns feel like they're one step away from history because they're not dealing with their own history. Yeah, it's they're... the western emptied out of history and more of like an existential landscape of violence. Right, and, and that's so much of, I think, like that element is there with Mike films and especially Yakuza Apocalypse is being removed removed one step from reality and the logic like the sort of standard logic of reality and then using both you know riffing on folklore just using like film gags throughout just to be foolish and have fun and then that like leads to all these unique moments that you can't find anywhere else mm -hmm. right with the, all those different collisions yeah and uh, and as well for Mike, you know working in japan and with the legacy of japanese cinema i mean he's also you could say either like paying homage to or going at you know like nikatsu noir and and you know uh battles without honor and humanity you know these like really you know well-respected yakuza films that he's also like you know hey, those don't make any sense either sure yeah 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 i mean they're pretty hard to follow you know but but even those are like they're playing it straight you know in a way that like mike has no desire to whatsoever yeah those films don't typically have someone with brain matter just like shooting out of their ears I think the defining Mike image for me is in City of Lost Souls. I think that's what it's called. There's a character who brushes their teeth with cocaine. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's just a recurring gag for no reason. That guy had his reasons. <laughs> yes, he did. And, you know, one thing I love, so once the monster shows up, there's that scene where he just like horrifically like destroys all these guys with a baseball bat. And in the midst of that, again, I think speaking to Mike's playfulness, there's a POV shot of a guy just being beaten with a baseball bat by a furry mascot frog costume. And there's like blood splatter flying on the lens flying everywhere it's it's just fun yeah you know? while everyone else is sitting around like deadpan you know yeah because that frog really does look like the kind of dude in a suit that you would go up to an amusement park you know as a kid to get a picture with so it's nice now i like him subverting that image because from now on when i see you know fucking schlubs wearing like giant mickey mouse heads i'm just gonna think about them kicking ass and tearing shit up yeah. in, in their rage. Beating people to death with a baseball bat. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, and it's really interesting in the ways I think that we're sort of now describing also like Mike's career and his influences because I found it fascinating that his mentor and the person that he has said was like so formative for his career was was Shohei Imamura. And I, I guess I kind of see that. I, yeah. I, I see like the connections that could be made there. But when I think of, you know, what Mike is interested in in his films and, you know, sort of what he, he, he has, has gone for throughout this like very prolific career, I often think of like Seijun Suzuki. You know, if you think of like Branded to Kill or Tokyo Drifter, they seem so much, uh, you know, the, the progenitors of, of what... Mike is doing certainly here and in quite a few of his other films, you know, like just 
just breaking rules for the sake of breaking rules. And like Suzuki, you know, Suzuki was a guy that people often went to and would say things like, oh, you know, you were consciously doing this and, you know, this is all about pop art and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, I wasn't trying to do any of that, you know? Like, I was just trying to have a good time. I was trying to have fun, you know? And I think Mike has the same mentality. Well, right? I think it's important too. Yeah, he is, he is a rebellious kind of guy. And again, you can like, you know, one of my favorite sort of things in Japanese cinemas, you can trace Ozu to Imamura to Mike. They were all assistants, you know, in a row to each other, right? And you can draw, you can you can see like the rejection over time, right? You start with Ozu and you go, Imamura learned from him. Certainly rejected almost everything that Ozu was doing in favor of his crazy quasi-documentary kind of work. And then Mike going even farther because there's no trace of documentary in Mike's work at all. There is that sort of anarchic spirit of Imamura and the willingness to like get down and dirty into like fucked up shit. That's very much part of Imamura as it is Mike, but Mike again, just has no interest in quote-unquote reality, really. You know, and, and in that, you know, you really described, I think, like a great sort of... Uh, you know, fuck, I guess you'd call it evolution of Japanese cinema, like in these three directors. De-evolution. De-evolution, <laughs> sure, you know, yeah. Yeah, de-evolution of like, you know, three generations of Japanese cinema and filmmakers and approaches, you know. I think it's interesting kind of comparing what Mike does as well with, um, you know, one of our shared favorite contemporary Japanese filmmakers, Takeshi Kitano, because... Katano also, I think, does similar things, you know, deconstructing the gangster film, the Yakuza film, but two sort of different sides, I guess, of the same coin between a Mike and a, and a Katano. You know, Mike is just so much more, as you said, like anarchic. And that's, to me, again, what this film is, is about. And I think it's, it's important to look at it, like, again, like as this statement for him of, of once again trying to sort of reaffirm, like, what he really loves about movies. And though I think some of his like more prestigious, you know, period films that he had dipped into, you know, I think 13 Assassins is an amazing movie. But 13 Assassins, you know, it feels a lot more like sort of, yeah, Japanese prestige samurai films. Uh, whereas, you know, with this, I mean, yeah, what better way to, to blow all that up than with a man in a furry frog costume bringing about the destruction of, of Japan and presumably the world yeah, after, you definitely know. Definitely the world. Because that's the way I like to see it. You know, like, Ryan was sort of joking around, you know, like, he texted me while I was watching. He's like, I'm an hour and 20 minutes into this. When's the world going to end or whatever? And I was like, I said, wait for it. But, you know, again, in my mind, it's like, I see this Yakuza vampire plague is, like, continuing to spread. Like, I think, you know... Maybe you could have said, like, at a certain point, we'd see a scene in the United States where everyone's walking around like Yakuza vampires as well. Like, it just keeps spreading and spreading. Yeah, I was wondering if, like, gangster blood in general is similar to Yakuza blood, like, or if that is, like, truly a local Japanese element of the film where, like, everyone else in the world is just considered a civilian, or if you could be Yakuza in spirit and ideology and that would affect the nutritional content of your blood and its potency. See, that's exactly what Mike doesn't want you to wonder about. You <laughs> I, know, know? Well, I, yeah. I don't think he really asks us to, but I just I couldn't <laughs> help but think about it. Yeah. yeah, and to answer your 
question uh, whether the world ends or not, there is one shot in the film that is about a quarter of the Earth, and it is completely engulfed in flames. And they're all, they also do explicitly say, before the climactic fight, Mad Dog, the super tough, backpack-wearing Indonesian tourist from The Raid. Yeah. Uh, Yayan Ruhian is yeah. his name. And he shows up and he says, you know, to Kagiyama, they're like the only two people left, uh, and he says, the world is coming to an end anyway. Yeah. So let's fight. Yes. Yeah, their final test of strength is just spectacular. Oh, yeah. Because, again, it's a brilliant deconstruction of, like, the final duel. Because throughout this film, we've had amazing, well-choreographed martial arts sequences, you know, of, like, you know, great fights. And then when we finally get this awesome showdown, this duel between these two, you know, very tough, very accomplished martial artists... It's basically just like two guys punching each other in the face until one of them collapses. Like it, it's like totally devoid of acrobatics and very know? rhythmic and very like very much so they are in sync with each other. Yes. You know, they're never trying to pull a fast one. It is very much a test of like will and strength. Two guys stand in front of one another and just punch each other at the same time in the face <laughs> until one of them's like, I've had enough. Yeah. It's extremely compelling to watch. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. And I think if you think about it as well in contrast even to Le Fin du Monde and sort of like what people in that movie are doing when the world is ending, because again, here's Mike's vision of what like fun or what they should be doing when the world is ending is that they should just see who's toughest by punching each other in the face repeatedly. <laughs> And yeah. again, it's like, you know, Mike is you know, obviously steers you away from reading too deeply, certainly in this film. But again, I, I thought it was this kind of commentary where you're like, yeah, these human beings are either so beautiful or so dumb that they're just like, let's just punch each other in the face. But we should tease out one other element of the film we haven't talked about, which is Kyoko the blind girl who factors into the ending of the film. And this is again, speaking to the, the, you know, the stray uh, sort of threads of this film. This is a, a woman who is like being beaten and raped by some bad Yakuza men in the beginning. And that's when we're introduced to like, you know, uh, the boss and Kagiyama and they save her and she's recovering in the hospital and Kagiyama is like falling in love with her. And it's this, uh, you know, Chaplin-esque sort of, hey, he's taking care of the blind girl. And ultimately, you know, she she recovers and they have a thing, but now he's a vampire and he's trying as hard as he can not to just devour her because he loves her and he wants to be a good Yakuza vampire who isn't just, you know, eating everything he sees. And ultimately this comes to a head when, again, there's, there's a fight between Kageyama and the Frogman where the Frogman comically disrobes out of the mascot suit to reveal that he just has a human body but a frog head yes and uh, hands <laughs> and hands and yeah. then again they fight and it's you know a great a great set piece 
And that sort of ends with Kagiyama like pulling tape off of the Frogman's belly button, which then releases like something into the <laughs> the earth that causes a, another large Frogman to like burst out of a volcano. Yeah, like it's like at the base of Mount Fuji. <laughs> yeah, but this one's even bigger, you know. And 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 again, like here's. Here's also Mike now going after like Godzilla and kaiju movies, yes. you know, by introducing this this creature that emerges, you know, from from Japanese soil and is now going to crush cities. I love when it comes out of the rocks too because it's like a it's like a totally fake backdrop like on purpose, you know. Yeah, uh, there's like, like action figures on the ground. It looks like a Corel, like the sun in the background is just like a painting or you know CG or whatever. It just looks ridiculous. Yes. So then there is all this like apocalyptic imagery being intercut with what's going on on the ground in this sort of like, yeah, the, the Yakuza vampire situation. <laughs> uh, before yeah. Kageyama fights Mad Dog, Kyoko shows up and she's like, you need strength, eat me or whatever. Mm -hmm. And Kageyama. She offers her neck. Yeah, she offers her neck to him and, and he takes it. Right? No, no. He no, he walks away yes. from her. He almost takes it. Right. Because she's like, save the world. He, you know. You need your yeah, strength. Yeah, yeah. Take my blood. That's right. But then he doesn't. And he still wins the, the fight. And then he, he sprouts fangs and wings and huge giant gargoyle claws and launches into space to go fight the kaiju or we whatever. We would assume so, yeah. That's right, he becomes and, a bad and, man. And Kyoko rings a gong. That's know? right. And we see the now frog monster, the third version of the frog monster, like now as, as large as Godzilla. Right. And then, yes, Kageyama uh, achieves his final form of like a full-fledged vampire bat, Yakuza, and launches into the sky, and then the movie just ends on that <laughs> note, right? A, a strange and bizarre ending, yeah. But, you know, too, I wanted to point out in that in that fight sequence, you know, in the duel the, the of Mad Dog and Kageyama punching each other in the face, it also dawned on me again, you know, I, I, I kept thinking about this film as Mike grappling with his career. And... I don't know if either of you noticed it, but that sequence, that scene where they're 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 dueling and they're just punching each other in the face, and we're trying to see who's gonna be the last one standing. It's also it's happening in front of an old cinema. It's happening in front of an old cinema adorned with all these like old Japanese film posters. And again, I was thinking about Mike saying like I wanted to make this film about you know resetting and 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 sort of reclaiming myself, and it's sort of like this battle of a career, you know, for him that, you know, and, he, and he's had his battles because, you know, he's had films where people have said, you know, it's terrible. And at times he said he thought his career was over. So it's like this idea of him just like taking all of these blows throughout his career, throughout the hundred movies he's made, you know, all the different labels that have been attached to him at times being told like, you don't know how to make a fucking movie to save your life. And there he is, just like taking these blows over and over again and saying, watch me, watch me go, watch me continue on, I will. And, and it's sort of this really defiant moment for him. And then, yes, of course, ascending in his 
new form of this vampiric <laughs> figure. That's nice. Yeah, I didn't make that connection, but that is pretty beautiful. And it's perfect because, of course, there's a lot to read into La Fin du Monde vis-a-vis the career of Abel Gantz himself, right? You already mentioned that the film starts with him as Jesus in a passion play, and he, within the film itself, is uh, a poet, a prophet, a, a philosopher, and he really is this sort of spiritual leader of this film, his face, uh, in addition to his filmmaking. And it's interesting that then, you know, for Mike, Yakuza Apocalypse is sort of, a, you know, him sort of reigniting a passion, and La Fin du Monde for Abel Gantz was his... Waterloo, as many people pointed out, right? Coming off the epic Napoleon in 1927, which of course... Of an actual depiction of Waterloo. <laughs> <Yeah>. Exactly. And, <laughs> uh, you know, that film, of course, known for being, you know, the epic to end all epics of French silent cinema. And it was a divisive film at the time, but recognized as a massive achievement. And... Then he follows it up with his first sound film, and it was, by all accounts, a disaster for him. Uh, Not only did it get taken away from him, but it, of course, sort of altered the course of his career. But, of course, you could also maybe argue that the sort of industries themselves were striking back against the excessive auteurs of the silent era. He's not alone. And especially a guy that had a very, I guess, yeah, sort of romantic, almost Victorian kind of sense of art. It's like, you know, Griffith fading away in the 20s and early 30s, you know. Gantz didn't fade away, but by all accounts, yeah, he sort of made more conventional films after the disaster of this. Although, again, looking to see that he worked into the 60s i'm curious to know what kind of conventional work abel gantz was doing so yeah this the end of the world is also sort of the end of abel gantz's autonomy as a director yeah i think it's a good point you mentioning that he sort of presents himself in the film and then just in general like with his real life as this a man obsessed with like a victorian idea of art and also like a very much like a gothic sensibility and obsessed with the sublime it, it it had like the classic type of line with like you know the tortured young man who loves beauty so much when he says you know oh the modern world is fortified against the sublime and i feel like that's the kind of like stupid shit that i could see in like a even just a contemporary film that's things people have been saying that for years the modern world fortified against the sublime it seems like the the modern world no matter what year it is will will never really be able to grasp the sublime like these young horny men will you know Mm -hmm. um in the same way that the modern monster in you know yakuza apocalypse you know it's described as the modern monster that's coming to like destroy the town and the world and everyone you know being foolish you know yeah and i would even say someone like mike is an example of the modern world not being fortified against the sublime only in the sense that <laughs> you can find the sublime in places that might be unexpected, right? Um, but of course, no, yeah, Abel Gantz would, would, I don't think he would have liked Yakuza Apocalypse. Probably not, right? <laughs> hard to say. Really, yeah, hard really to hard say. to say. But yeah, right, he's got his mentor. Is it Marshall at the beginning that mentions like, oh, the poetry and the love of the heart and the the, you know, that's that's all that you have on your mind, he's saying to Abel Gantz at the, at the beginning. His name is Jean in the film, right? Um, but yeah, pretty loaded, you know, to 
be the director of a film and toss yourself upon the cross in the opening images. Yes. And not just that, but but after we see Gantz play Jesus, uh, you know, he goes, he's an actor, it's established, it's just a stage show. We've seen, you know, him playing Jesus on stage. He gets down from the cross and then, like, in his dressing room afterwards, I think, like, mm-hmm. then makes this further declarative statement that, like, he's done acting. And now I think the specific line he says is that, you know, from this point on, my purpose is to suffer. <laughs> you know, which, again, from the, the conversation you've started here about, like, Gantz and his career and what he thinks, you know, it's like again, this further almost like megalomaniacal kind of view of himself that it's like, you know, he sees himself as this tortured, not just artist, but like savior figure. He says, uh, I know the purpose of my life. I must suffer. Don't ask me to explain it. Money would divert me from my task. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I hate to say it, but if I was a financier from the early 30s, I probably would have been pretty fucking annoyed with that guy, too, you know? Well, they also quote <laughs> Kropotkin, too, yep. in this very weird, you know, like, very, very weird way. Like, yeah, because it is this, like, moment of him, like, kind of, I guess, trying to state, you know, from Gantz's own view, like, of, of what what matters to him and what his purpose is in this world and bringing people together, uniting people and all of it through his suffering, right? Through his own sort of, what is the phrase? Like asceticism that he's sort of announcing to everyone, Mm -hmm. you know? And again, coming from a guy who's like known for making some of the most like bloated, (laughs) like epics of like silent cinema that... And here he is making a very bloated film that producers eventually were like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, (laughs) stop this. So, yeah, we should explain, I guess, to the viewers that the I think we all agree that the overall feeling of this film is a very herky jerky kind of like whiplash with, again, all this stuff that you are trying to guess, you know, what is missing, essentially, because there are uh, you're sort of, yeah, just like hurled through this narrative the thing that's so tough about it is that there's sort of a web of relationships amongst a lot of the different characters in the film but then clearly the scenes that were lost are at least presumably are scenes that were devoted to that characterization because throughout i was referring i would pause i would like look some things up because i was just like if i if i'm gonna try and talk about this movie like i kind of know who these people are because i'm confused and yeah there are a ton of people involved and are key players throughout but yeah they don't really they're never really given any opportunity to uh, receive any characterization to the point where i felt like i could confidently you know as I was watching it explain like, you know, cause and effect point A to point B. And I would say it feels at least a third of the film is like missing, like key information is gone. And then the rest, you know, maybe there's some superlative material that at the time was flights of fancy for Gantz that the studio was like, fuck, get this, well not studio, but financiers were like, get this out of here. A lot of the scenes felt like very abrupt, like they were just like snipped off by someone else, just like, oh, uh, that's good enough, or something like that. Like, Well, I, I think I read as well that there was, when it was originally released in the States, it was even more truncated. Yeah, there's, yeah. An, there's another version as well that's also severely... 
Yeah, I think I, read, I think it was I, sixty-five minutes. Oh, I read I read fifty-four minutes. Oh, I mean, you holy might be right. fuck! Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, well, it's also quite weird too because everything I was reading said that like what eventually got released was hundred and five minutes, and what we watched was an hour twenty-eight. Yeah. So there's still, <laughs> you know, maybe there was some other... Are you other, folks following this here? Yeah. <laughs> maybe there were some other key things that really clarified it in the 105-minute version. There's a lot of questions. There are. Yeah, because, I mean, even... <laughs> it's just the rapid-fire pace of the initial chunk of the film where Jean Ewogans is, like, a performer, and then he's very melancholic, and then he tries to save someone from being molested, and he's struck on the street, and he gets, like, knocked well, out. Well, he's hit with rocks in a very, like, Jesus-like scene where this mob surrounds him and pelts him, and it leaves him with, like, brain damage of some kind, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, he's, and, he's bedridden after it. Yeah, and then know? what follows is, yeah, him sort of like with his prophe- prophecies of apocalypse, but he's also just like surrounded by doves and birds, and he's like really softly lit, and he's just like... Yeah, that I think was really the moment when I felt I was like glimpsing into Gantz's like insanity... Uh, to be honest with you, without a doubt. Like, <laughs> oh, I felt that way at least for the first, yeah, the first thirty minutes when John is just present in the film. That's how it all feels. It kind of feels like this weirdly undiluted, you know, look into his mind and his his own psychosis. Yeah, as he's laying there in bed, covered in doves. And, uh, you know, this doctor figure is, like, sort of talking to him about, like, well, you, you know, you could die, you know? And, and then he, like, responds. La mort ne prendra plus en moi qu'un corps vide de sa lumière. All death will take from me is a body emptied of its light. You know? And it's like, what is he, what is going on here? <laughs> like, you know, because it's such an, it's, it's so bizarre that, you know, he he's starting on this note and he's establishing himself and you're starting to think, like, this film is about him. Like, this is this is what the center of this film is going to be. But it's not. It's like, not, he's yeah. just the prelude yeah. to the end of the world and the struggle against it. Yeah, know? that was one of the things that made the viewing experience so difficult because I agree. I was, like, using my mental energy to really focus in on him because he was sort of getting the most screen time and characterization. I was like, okay, great. Like, this is this is who I could hold on to here. But, yeah, no, he leaves the film and is replaced very briefly with a, you know, a record he's recorded. You can hear him on the phonograph afterwards so when he still had his, his mental capacities before he went, like, full loony, you know, and it gets carted off. Well, yeah, they sort of, like, forcibly take him out <laughs> yeah. too. He's unceremoniously like yeah. hauled off there's, to the loony bin. Like, <laughs> yeah, there's an element too. So like um, we should introduce the other important players, right? So there's Jean's brother, Marshall, who is a famous scientist who has a cool observatory where he's no- a very cool noticing that there's a comet headed for Earth. And there's also Genevieve, who is this woman who's sort of in between the brothers. They both love her, but she loves Jean, and Jean rejects her because, uh, like, you know, he's like Jesus. He rejects all material mm-hmm. things. And she also plays Mary Magdalene yes. in the crucifixion play at the beginning. <laughs> yes. And so he makes these records before he is carted off to the asylum, and he leaves behind his sort of like his vision of 
the future and his vision of what this comet heading for the Earth means. And I think it's like, again, you know, in in looking at like an end of the world movie, it's like, right, what do how are people going to react to this? And, and the, the theory that Jean is proposing is that this like cataclysmic event will create a new and better society somehow through his uh, records through his uh and we'll, we'll we'll get to what happens in the movie <laughs> at the end when shit is going nuts but yeah his vision again is this kind of like universal humanism and this kind of like universal state where yeah this like pan-religious sort of like um and again it's you know on the, on the one hand like the time this film is made i want to go like oh well that's like you know, it's like a nice sort of gesture as the world's getting darker in between the wars. Yeah. But on the other hand, you go like, is this guy fucking nuts? Is this guy hopelessly yeah. naive? Yeah, who is he kidding? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's clear that this is made in like the shadows of the Great War yes. in the in the in the in the sh- in the still smoldering ruins of Europe following World War One. You know, it, it it struck me. It sort of reminded me as well of a of a film made. I think also around the same time, the adaptation of H.G. Uh, Wells' uh, Things to Come. You know, in a similar way, this sort of let's take stock of of World War One and this just absolute, you know, again, you talk about like the end of the world, like, you know, for those who experienced World War One at the time, I mean, it seemed like hell on earth. It seemed like this sort of apocalyptic, you know, wh- where do we go from here? It's either only going to get worse from this or we have to do something radically different, you know, and, and these utopic visions that came out of that, you know, uh, things to come being one of them, a sort of like sci-fi, you know, call to, to, to action, call to, to peace. Uh, and this film being made around the same time and, and having a sort of similar vision, right? This, this, like, as you said, this sort of call for universal humanism, right? But that now, especially for us, just do look and feel so hopelessly naive, you know, or worse even, like deranged as as this film can feel at times, you know? Yeah, and I think it's worth pointing out again, like Gantz did think that like it was his, he had a utopian mission that he articulated and it was like against pessimism and against you know what the world war 1 had caused and made people feel and think and all and all this kind of stuff and he actually was working with the league of nations and he was trying to establish a unit within the league of nations that would like he would hand pick directors to make films about all the great religious figures and stuff like that yeah. i mean it's like really crazy shit he had a hand pick list of he was like wanted dryer to do one you know <laughs> he wanted he claimed jesus for himself but yeah. they were gonna do a <laughs> moses film you know again the whole thing of being like he was upset like again he was like a league of nations guy yeah basically and really into that sort of mode and that vibe and of course that is what this film is explicitly this hits the end of the world how do they react and his vision 
is to, yeah, to save it, to transform society, to, you know, have human beings understand and love each other. Yeah, because that's an important point to stress is that, you know, unlike a movie that, you know, would have been made like today dealing with a similar subject, you know, something like Armageddon, right? Here's this comet or here's this meteor. It's coming. It's going to crash in the earth. So our movie today is all about like, well, we got to get up there and we got to somehow blow that thing up, right? We got to send the space cowboys up to, to fucking nuke the meteor or whatever. But this movie, there's nothing. There's no, I mean, this is 1931. There's no fucking space travel. We're cooked, folks. That thing is coming and it's going to crash into us. So the drama in this movie isn't about them like stopping or diverting this disaster in any way. It's it's coming to terms with it. And getting the word out because there is a lot of misinformation and fake propaganda yeah, the original <laughs> and news, yeah, yeah because again like it's all these scientists going like sounding the alarm and none of the politicians and media outlets want to deal you know they don't want to touch this thing with a 10-foot pole because they're and, worried the markets are going to crash yes they're constantly freaking out about the markets sound familiar right and it's even like Gantz is showing us in the newspaper like world war is breaking out at at this moment and these guys are like why are you fighting wars there's a comet coming straight for earth and so they set up in john's like john's off in the asylum and genevieve and marshall set up this like science command unit in the observatory where their whole thing is like just trying to tell everyone that the world is ending and that like you know, I also love that. Oh, sorry. I, I was just gonna say, I also love that point because it's like, what are they doing in this command center? It's like they're just letting people know that the world's well, gonna end. and he's trying to convene a world congress before the comet hits. So, just in case that people survive, then there will be like a new constitution right. or a new universal government that can deal with what's left of I, humanity. I just love though that part of their mission too, he said was like to, to, to stop panic to like, they wanted to stop panic yeah. and like, he just constantly is just counting down. Like, and I was thinking way to calm everybody at one point. Like he's like, here's my heroic act. He like gets on the radio and it's like 732 hours left to live. <laughs> Like, wait a fucking like, like ease tension here. Like, why do you got to keep giving us the countdown, bro? Like, just gonna make things worse for me. Yeah, and so he's like, so he's mainly battling against uh, Genevieve's father, uh, Merci, uh, Mister Merci, uh, who's just this sort of like horrible, horrible man, uh, and his associate. Schomburg. Schomburg. Schomburg, right, who uh, is... Not to be confused with Schomburg, Illinois. I was just about to say, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so... Both equally vicious. This is, yeah, he's a big, he's sort of like the film's main villain, and he is a stock-trading playboy who is after Genevieve, and in fact, with the tacit sort of help of her father, is uh, he rapes Genevieve at a party uh, early on in the movie, which sends Genevieve to Marshall and the whole science experiment and all that. That was an especially um, like gothic sequence. It kind of almost felt like something out of Nosferatu. Well, in fact, that whole party sequence is the really the first sequence in the film that felt like 
full Abel Gantz to me because it's this insane party that Schomburg's throwing where they're on boats out in the water and there's fireworks going off and there's like lights strung everywhere uh, and he's just showing off, you know, being this playboy. And Gantz's camera, obviously very uncharacteristically for this time period, is bobbing around and weaving and moving and doing handheld, out of focus. Like, again, he has these impressionistic flourishes that he likes to use. Tons of superimpositions. And that's, you know, those are the moments for me when he really shines you know uh even in his earlier films like la rue like when he starts cutting and when he starts like mashing everything together and that scene felt like largely untouched to me in that sense like even the yeah, yeah it felt like complete. when schomburg like goes after genevieve it is like the lighting is crazy and the angles are very extreme it's funny how in all those moments when there is like extreme stylization that that is when the film feels most aesthetically coherent when he is being at his most radical that is when it i felt the vision was at its clearest a hundred percent. Because I mean, obviously, I think the I think the last ten minutes of this movie are the best part of it, right? Which is just this yeah. chaotic end of the world sequence, and that's when he's really like going off, uh, as they say, right? <laughs> and I know, you know, he also employed at like some other like you know very notable French filmmakers at the time to do second unit stuff because it was just like. It's the end of the world. Yeah. Like, go crazy. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. and had, all, had all these different people shooting stuff. Yeah, I mean, there is a ton of different locations in that montage and in that craziness. So that makes sense that it was a bunch of people all around getting a little a little bit in for the big production. <laughs> in, in certain respects, too, it was like this really intense sort of mashup uh, stylistically uh, of like... Eisensteinian montage and I think you even mentioned like Nosferatu of like this like German expressionist like mm-hmm. you know shadow play and uh, very like intense sort of high contrast lighting like and and all of that kind of coming together in this way that you know uh, not you know whatever you know how we do around here but like thinking also of Yakuza Apocalypse and of guys who have these sort of like broad stylistic sort of interests and and you see that in in Gantz's work certainly in here that this is kind of like uh, like everything but the kitchen sink kind of approach at times that that just is so transcendent of everything else in between you know all the sequences of people having or trying to establish kind of like human connections that because of its truncated version like are just so empty uh you know again i guess like Mike, you know there's a lot of like causal linkage like you said that's just gone in this film but in those moments in a few of these set pieces where you know his vision is just totally on lock like the film is is quite stunning and and quite moving at Mm -hmm. times you know and and very impressive yeah, I would even, I think it's worth mentioning too that even when there is a lot of um, dramatic failings because of how much information we've lost, I will say I was quite surprised, not that I necessarily doubted him, but that it really doesn't feel like sound hampered him too extremely, at least in terms of a 1931 production. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, I think like the dialogue recording is like 
objectively bad, <laughs> but I don't think it hampered his creativity because I think he's thinking musically almost already. Oh right? yeah, no, of course. Yeah, no, I should qualify that by saying is yes, it it sounds horrible. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's nice to but look at. But it looks at. great. It, it yeah. doesn't it doesn't necessarily feel like he had to make extreme compromises with his like blocking and the way he was shooting the sequences because of the sound. The sound definitely took a hit because of the way he decided to shoot those sequences. Um but in general it's like a very nice looking film um and is very dynamic. There's so much there's just so many sequences of people like ascending and descending um, different areas, like lots of spiral staircases or like weird, you know, lots of, I mean, there's all the Eiffel Tower stuff at the end, of course, too. Um, but in, even just these observatories, these big rooms, these big, like all this like web of metal everywhere that people are climbing up and down or waiting for cranes, you know, just like hanging by the door waiting for the crane they can like step on. Um, yeah, that element of it I found very impressive. Yeah, like, the more the movie gets, like, bigger and bigger, like, the better it gets, yeah. you know? Because, again, it's just, like, this chaotic slapdash of, you know, crowd scenes of people in Paris. And, like, yeah, there's, like, stock market scenes and, you know, all the people at the science place. And, like, yeah, it's always, like, bustling around and moving. But it builds to, I think, for the time, a very impressive climax like it, it builds to this idea of the end of the world like again comparing the two films like the idea of the end of the world is so much more present in this film <laughs> than it is in yakuza apocalypse right where the world just kind of ends there uh but here like i feel that we are building to that like i do feel his vision of of what he was trying to achieve in creating this sort of like end of the world panic like comes through quite well in the film, you know? And as we get there, like this to me, like, yes, I felt like, all right, this is an end of the world movie. And it made me think of like how this must've been a big influence on so many other films to come. Like I can't think of, of an earlier film where I, I felt that same sort of global kind of catastrophe imminent. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, I would guess I would say to directly related to that is that the film is at its most successful when it's at the macro level. And then it's like, of course, all the failings come from the micro and just the missing sequences from the, you know, the micro level. Which may be related. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, um, you know, too, this film was the inspiration for the Guy Madden film, Hearts of the World, one of the great uh, short films ever made. And of course, it's similar sort of subject matter. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. I think one of the things, too, that I really liked while I was watching this movie is, you know, again, considering that it's a film from 1931 and it's it's striving for this sort of, like, you know, modern approach to, like, science at the time, it's like, I love that, you know, in, like, 1930 and, like, this, like, era of, like, modernism and, like, art and technology and culture it's like modern science often just boils down to a bunch of guys in a room flipping switches and twisting knobs you know like the science command center i'm like what are they even doing in here no like, idea <laughs> like there's just a bunch of everyone's at work like you said marsha just hustling and bustling and it just boils down to a guy who just is like doing a countdown you know like 
They're not trying. What are they trying to solve in there? Well, that's so. Yeah, part of the plot is that Genevieve is working at the science center, and she's just like manning the phones all day. And she just gets like so fed up because she sort of like joined in this union, being like, "Yeah, I'll like marry the scientist, and we'll, you know, we'll ride this out together." But she's kind of just like an office drone, and she's like, <laughs> "I miss my wealthy life." And she, yeah, very briefly like goes back to her father in Schomburg, uh, and that leads to like the the, <laughs> the, but like right when you know the comet's like really come, you know, it's like visible in the sky. There's like all this hijinks at the Eiffel Tower over the radio uh, signal that's being broadcast from there. Because again, ultimately, most of the plot concerns like media wars yeah. uh, more than, you know, stopping the comet because they can't. And there's this crazy scene where they're going up to like hijack the radio and then they burn with like, you know, welding instruments. They like burn off the elevator of the Eiffel Tower and they send Schomburg and all his cronies to just like a horrifying death in this elevator that drops. And that's also like <laughs> yeah. one of the peak, like maximalist scenes, the camera just being dropped from great heights, mm -hmm. like as if an elevator falling. And again, talking about like ascending and descending, the, everything leading up to that is designed just to give you a sense of how tall the Eiffel Tower is and how high up everyone's going and how much time it takes even just to get up there. So when the camera does feel like it's been untethered and just falls with it, it's, yeah, it's really impactful. And as, you know, Siegfried Krakauer would say, like a truly cinematic moment, you know, when you can showcase the big and the small you know like he's all about that mm -hmm. and i was like thinking of that while watching it but as you said it's just this this time for cinema to like also show people you know and knowing what Gantz's mission often was like what cinema can really do like yeah. look at this folks look where we can take you I can take you all the way to the end of the world, you know? And also to the top of the Eiffel Tower, and you know? Down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know? You know, Siegfried Krakauer uh, said something else uh, specifically about this film. He unfavorably compared it to Metropolis and said, the French have their kitsch and we have ours. <laughs> oh, dude. Shots fired. Dude, I so when I read that, I was like, that's so savage. Yeah. And like, he obviously has a point, and I like uh, both of those films. Ooh, dude, you know? if, if Twitter had existed back then, imagine, <laughs> imagine that tweet, you know? Whoa, I don't. Whoa. Yeah. Endless. Yeah. <laughs> it, is, it is really funny, though, in, in sort of like stepping back. Like, when I finished watching the film and... You know, I really did, like, I think one of the final notes I wrote was, like, and the EU is formed, you know? <laughs> yeah, totally. Yes. <laughs> yeah, know? let's talk about that. So, the in the end, Marshall and all the scientists are trying to, like, convene a world congress. Mm -hmm. And that's, like, part of the struggle, getting the word out around the world in 1930s, very difficult, especially with, like, capitalism allied against you and sort of fighting against you. And they're going to have the congress on the day before the comet hits, and they finally do convene, and it's, like, 
people from all delegates from all over the world come to this Congress where then Marshall presides over declaring this like <laughs> these new universal laws and universal government and universal yeah. government. Right. So the, he talks about, yeah, it's like the sacred law for all those who survive. And the, the major points of this are, number one, the universal republic is proclaimed. Number two, within the universal republic is the federated states of Europe, <laughs> the European Union. Yep. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, that's, the, that's those are those, that, that's, those are pretty much the points, you know. And again, I mean, and he does he talks about erasing class and borders, you know. He goes there, right? He's like, mankind has forgotten, you know, what this is all about, you know. Again, World War One mindset, and and like while this is going on too, this is like preceded by a global montage. So again, this like macro, right, where it's like. Birds, wind, clouds, waves, and then we're seeing like Muslims praying. And that's like also a thing, too, where like everyone around the world starts praying. And We'll talk about whether or not that affects the path of the comet, comet in a minute. But yeah, there's like Muslims praying and there's people in Africa and there's penguins and there's like a guy in Penguins Siber- praying. There's penguins <laughs> praying. There's a guy in Siberia with his reindeer and just like wearing furs. Yeah. Uh, there's fish, there's mountains, there's like dust in cities and it's just like going off. Like... Yeah, it's cranked up to 11. It's it's incredible. And then yeah, there's so much like chaos and revelry at the same time cuz yeah, yes. you have you have the elites like having these big fancy parties where they're all getting drunk and jamming. Fancy well, party, it's a fucking orgy. Well, yeah, there's the orgy, <laughs> but then there's also like the guy playing the theremin to like the quiet crowd like to enjoying To the orgy. <laughs> Yeah, oh, it's the, it's same the same space. Room. Oh, it's the same. Oh, okay. <laughs> 31, you're going to have an orgy with a theremin, you yeah. know? Like, let's go. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that, again, is a massive scene of all these people, and the orgy is escalating as people are drinking and singing and performing and having a, a classic last night on Earth. And this is like... A, pre, at, a pre-code last night on Earth, uh, we should point out. Yes, yeah. this is... <laughs> yeah, it's pretty pretty salacious, my friends. Uh, and there's also, like, super impositions of, like... Egypt and Alaska, <laughs> like all this stuff happening. You know, it's really ratcheted up. It's going crazy. And then the comet misses. However, causing substantial destruction. Yeah, because they talk about all the like carbon uh, that is surrounding the comet. So they're like, no matter what, we are in danger. And yeah, so when it does skim by, it does, yeah, it causes like quite a bit of havoc. And there are some incredible special effects when when things start falling apart, especially when they're they've convened and you know are talking about that universal government, and then that structure collapses on them, it's an incredible bit with, like, the super the the shot of them superimposed over a like two scale model of the room, so that when the room collapses, it does look like it's falling on that crowd of people. It looks really sweet. <laughs> And then yeah, then of course, but then he does a really good job with because of how like rapid fire so much of it is, and the way it's very rhythmic and kind of musical, the way that all the shots kind of like match and go into each other. So like even if it's just 
isolated like a shot of a wave doesn't like look as impactful but when it like cuts into you know heavy wind or other destruction um it all feels like a a chaos that's like linked together and it's an incredible like visual uh montage and there's one incredible moment where everything sort of slows down at the orgy when the orgy is overtaken by a chorus of robed like monks like catholic monks yeah Yeah, like singing catholics like out of nowhere and everything just sort of stops and it really kills the vibe of the orgy oh my god totally (laughs) it totally kills the orgy i would have been really upset the theremin comes to a howling they're worse they're (laughs) they're worse than burt lancaster in seconds you know (laughs) talking about ruining the orgy uh but yeah for gantz it's one of his many excessive sort of catholic flourishes uh, and again, he is he's preaching for the most part this sort of like pantheistic humanism, but the film is just steeped in Catholic imagery, crosses constantly, Jesus, all this stuff uh, in your face at all times. Yeah, and even as you pointed out, not just like the physical ascension that we see throughout the film, but yeah, the spiritual ascension as yeah. well. You know. Yeah, and I think, again, like, bringing both of the movies into a a savage coupling, a beautiful collision, you know, it's two totally different sort of mindsets and approaches to the end of the world that are so rooted in, obviously, like, place and culture and two very deranged minds. But, But I think it's important to point out that, you know, in the case of Gantz, right, this is made in 31, so this is after World War One, and it, it has this, and, you know this this sort of like utopic desperation right this utopic vision that you know folks the end of the world could be here you've got to check yourself before we all wreck ourselves right this this hopeful sort of like it's not too late to avert uh whereas you know in the case of Takashi Miike this is someone born you know in the in the the dust and rubble of of post world war 2 Japan a country who had witnessed what the end of the world can look like, that it's very real and it's here. In, a, in essence, it's already happened yeah. for the Japanese. And so because it's already happened, who gives a fuck what you do, right? There's a much different sort of feeling here that, you know, the world has, in a sense, already ended. We might as well just have fun. You know, which is so different might from well stay foolish. Yeah, you, exactly. You might as well stay foolish, you know, whereas in Gonza's film, it's like stay earnest. Right. Everyone is being very foolish. And the call is to stop it. Stop it. Stop all this. You know, <laughs> we need bureaucracy and we need transparency. You know, like, <laughs> you know, this, this. yeah, I mean, you hit it on the head with the like extremely funny description of Abel Gantz as a League of Nations guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because yeah. that is definitely. Yeah. That is very clear in the film and his ethos. And so that's, yeah, we're sort of like, we're, we're left with the, the sort of destruction of Earth, but humanity will survive. There are people in the rubble. And, and we spe- get, oh, I was just say we get shots of farmland. It's yes. clear that things are growing again, you know. And specifically then we see the last image of the film is a horse 
pulling a cart across this, the image of a sort of like farm landscape, and it's pulling a cross on its back, and then it just sort of like says Finn uh, <laughs> as it like fades out or whatever. Yeah, and then behind Finn on the screen are all these national flags yeah. like together. <laughs> League of Nations guy. League of Nations guy. <laughs> Give it up. Well, we saw how the League of Nations worked out, didn't we? Yes, we did. Yeah. Well, and, and again, I mean, you know, uh, it's the cataclysmic event, you know. The more things change, the more things stay the same, you know. Mm-hmm. The world is already ending. Yeah. Yeah, he was really prescient with having a villain game the stock market once he saw that there was a global disaster heading their way. Probably stole it from Soviet cinema. They were always cut into the stock market. Sure. It is interesting, too, that it was made, you know, in 31. So this is like already a couple of years after the 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 actual yeah. stock market collapse. Oh, yeah. You know? and that, so- did, that wasn't lost on me, especially with the mention of the recession in Yakuza Apocalypse. So, again, if you want to connect these films historically, they're both recession films they're both films that are coming out in the wake of just major capitalist failures right so i think yeah that's you know something to that we did it again we did it again oops we did it again so i guess a question that i have too is is which end of the world uh was more appealing to you if you had to go you know Oh, the comet, for sure. I mean, I guess implying that the comet would be fast, that there's like a clear target with the timeline, so I know how much time I have left. I like know how much more time I have to just like fuck and have fun and, you know, hang out with everybody. And then, um, yeah, and just really, you know, like steal what I want, uh, <laughs> eat what I want. Like I have like a nice clear timeline, Um I, I think I would be more frightened by the chaos of like the giant frog mascot man and like the bat yakuza's. Um, it would feel very unstable. But I think like <laughs> having like a group of math men constantly patting each other on the back, just being like, "Your calculations are correct, and it, this is when it's going to happen." Yeah. Just like confirming the data. Um, Seven hundred and thirty-two hours to go, folks. Yeah, I guess like let the looting begin. <laughs> that one's a little more comforting than just the uh, the the unknown. Then, then becoming a yakuza vampire for a little while. And I think so. Yeah, sitting around and like playing dice and <laughs> <laughs> bullying people. Yeah. I never thought that I could achieve my dream of being a yakuza. You know. So I think if I had the opportunity, I'd like to dip my toes in and be, uh, even though I'd be a vampire, I'd be happy to be a Yakuza for a minute. You know, the only white guy who's ever done it is Robert Mitchum (laughs) in the Yakuza. It's very true. And I want to be, I want to go out like him. Yeah. You know, just swinging a sword through paper walls. I'm with you on that. I'm I'm with Marsh on this. I want to slouch. I want to, you know... Not give a goddamn about anything, you know? Sure. I like the nihilism there. Mm. I mean, I guess there's nihilism in your description as well, but... Yeah. yeah it know. depends which party you're at in uh, Paris. Very true. Yeah, definitely. I guess I was wondering, too, if the 
if everyone became a Yakuza vampire, then would they all die off because there was no more civilian blood? Well, it is why, you know, again, the mentor guy is like, this is very bad. Like, we, yeah. we, the balance is very important yeah, you here. You can't you put know? it back. And again, it's a funny point that we didn't really bring up earlier, but, you know, that's why I love at a certain point that the actual Yakuza guys start freaking out and they're like, we've got to secure the civilians. We've got to like, yeah, they totally switch sides. Yeah, yeah. If we don't have civilians. What the fuck? How are we going to make money if everybody's Yakuza? Like we're, we're fucked. And they like, go, that's when they like try to go to the cops and the crazy, like captain boss tries to start She's growing, growing yeah. <laughs> civilians out of like dirt and milk. She's got a human farm. Yeah. Another. Yeah. Just total the honesty crazy farm. Gay flourish. Yeah. <laughs> the honesty farm. Dude. It reminded me of like the aesthetics of happiness of the Katakuri. Yes. Like the bodies coming up from under the ground. Like, yeah. Very saturated, goofy color, cartoony. Yeah. 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 Totally unlike anything else in the film aesthetically, yeah. but just for this reveal that they're growing children in this farm. Yeah. They're trying to grow honest civilians. <laughs> Take advantage of it. Again. <laughs> dude. It's so wild. Two madmen showing us the end of the world as only they can. Yeah, absolutely. You gotta love it. So yeah, I mean that's the these are the visions we brought you, Marsh. Um, <laughs> these are the visions of the end that that we were able to find. What are some of your favorite visions of of it all kind of going away? I think my favorite end of the world movie is one of my favorite movies of the 2010s. Abel Ferrara's 444, Last Day on Earth. And this, that film, kind of the opposite of the films we talked about today in terms of the end of the world, because it's Ferrara very much going in on the uh, sort of end with a whimper kind of concept, right? Where it's Willem Dafoe in his New York apartment, and uh, everyone is informed uh, the world is ending, and they've got, you know... Till 444. And he just spends the time bumming around his apartment and hanging out with his girlfriend. He goes to visit his friends. And, like, really, that's it. And there's a lot of extra textual Abel Ferrara media montages of the world sort of ending as well, like cutting into this destruction while Willem Dafoe's, like, ordering Chinese food, which is one of my favorite scenes of any movie ever. He orders Chinese food and he goes to pay the guy and realizes oh fuck it's the end of the world and he like doesn't know what to do with the cash in his hand but they end up having this very like touching sort of moment together in this shared humanity but yeah, yeah. he grants him access to uh, his computer so he can skype with his family that's right who are living abroad mm-hmm. anyway it's a yeah it's a, a very uh great movie i don't know yeah just, it is and it's yeah. a film that i think exceeds very well on the micro level of the end of the world yes. if we're comparing it to both films that we've had that are very much you know macro looks uh, at things yeah this is a totally different wavelength that movie um it is very very good <laughs> all right next week it is andy's turn to pick the topic what do you got for us this time we've uh, watched a, a lot of movies that um i think you know we've we've um respected we've looked at some really great films some very interesting films but you know this week we also kind of looked at two films that are not everyone's cup of tea and from sort of controversial directors and you know we've looked at sort of you know maybe films that aren't necessarily considered their greatest work so i thought 
I'd like to lean into that idea a little bit more, but on a very personal level for both of you. So what I'd like to see from you folks next week is the best of the worst. So what I want you to do is to bring me a film that is almost universally reviled, um, and particularly by people you respect from either film communities that you're a part of or critics that you really admire that have a film that they just think is useless junk, garbage, a terrible movie, but one that you really love, respect, and admire. So I want you to make the argument that this film that somebody might consider to be one of the worst movies ever made is one of the best. No problem. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Stay foolish. Encore